0: I'd like to start and say how I got here. Um, as you guys know, I've been going to school since I was five. Never, never missed a day, up until about, uh, you know, recently, where I stopped getting fellowships. My last fellowship was in addiction medicine, which I did about three years ago. So, I have four fellows. I mean, I have four board certifications and some other stuff, but one of them is in addiction medicine. I don't know if you guys know about it. Now, to be honest, Maybe you could edit this or not edit it out. I don't particularly find treating patients with addiction super stimulating. In the sense, I do find it interesting, but I also think it's like it needs more research needs to be done on it and I wanna use that venue. Because why don't I find it that interesting? It's hard enough to treat somebody who, who is 100% honest with you. It's much harder to treat somebody who isn't as honest with you. And what I mean by that is, If you go in, you say you're addicted to something, blah, 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 I've never used, and then you do a drug screen, and then it's positive, and then you get the whole story. You know, I ate a poppy seed bagel. Well, I'd say you have to eat 25 to be positive on your open screen. He goes, oh, funny you say that. I ate seven dozen, you know? Uh, And I go, well, it has to be done in one hour. He goes, yes, it was a contest. And that's the hard part. (laughs) With that said, what I absolutely love is, you know, I like to drink, you like to drink, some people don't drink. Some people have used opiates before, and they hate it. I'm one of the haters. Some people use it once and say, I would like to give up my, all my fortune, all my money, my wife, my life, my kids, just so I could do this drug again. So there's something chemical there. For those of you who don't think it's a disease, I think... Let's, I don't know, how do you politically correct say that? I think you're wrong. <laughs> okay, so, uh, sorry. I think you're... You're, you're not approaching correctness, how's that, or something. Um, the point I make is there is a reason why, you know, uh, sure, you could say willpower, blah, blah, blah. Maybe that has an impact in it, but the point of the matter is um, addiction is a disease. Now, I want to just make sure this works. Okay, so, do you think alcohol addiction is a disease? Yes. Yeah, no doubt, right? Do you guys probably have brothers sisters that... Maybe you're addicts. It's hard for me to believe that there's anyone in this room who is not one or two degrees of separation from someone who's an addict. Okay? I'd be hard-pressed for that. Okay? And the question always is, like, what makes an addict an addict? Or what is an addiction? Right? And uh, it's kind of a a million-dollar question, but anyone take a stab at the definition? So we'll start with, I like a drug or something so much, but it always has to have this component to it. Anyone know? Take a gaffe. Well, there's quote these terms functional alcoholic, right? And they say, look, you know, I'm, a, I'm an ER doc, and every day I have a couple shots when I get up in the morning and I do great, and blah, blah, blah. I'm not encouraging that. That's a terrible example. But the point is, technically, that guy might not have an addiction because it hasn't messed up his functionality. It has to mess up something in your life, okay? Whether it be that you're chronically late for work whether it be that you you know lose your job right which you will lose etc so it has to lead to some faulting of that okay there's addictions to everything now okay i don't know you know um you know actors get caught you know they're married for 20 years they get caught on the set having sex with 14 girls that are all underage and immediately going to rehab for sex addiction you know You know, is that real or not? That's a whole other question. But if you believe in that, it did alter their life. Now it's gonna lead to them getting divorced and they gave up everything that they had, et cetera. So, I digress. By the end of this, I hope that you will learn something. And we're gonna talk about alcohol, which I think is the granddaddy. We're gonna talk a little bit about opiates, and hopefully we're gonna have some novel approaches, okay? Yes? I just, I'm bringing this to everyone's attention these are your new interns, these are not medical students. Oh, these are medical students? Oh, no, these are oh sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can pick yes, on them. Oh, interesting. So, I want to show you this table. So, did everyone, everyone knows about this table, this chart? I guess it's not a table, it's a chart kind of thing. So, <clears throat> this is what they tell you in medical school. They say that I stopped drinking, I stop using a drug, and then a couple hours later, I start... For alcohol, I start to get seizures for all GABA-A drugs, such as benzos, phenobarbital, you know, meprobamate, soma, uh, propofol, if you're addicted to that. You start to get seizures, maybe. But you might have minor withdrawal, You might have moderate to severe withdrawal, and then later on you start to get delirium tremors where maybe you get shaky, maybe you get confused, you have altered mental status, etc. So, first I want to give you some general principles that are absolutely true. How many people... I was on call last night for the Poison Center. Okay, and I tell you guys this all the time, so we'll try to keep it to the front of the room. How many people died of an uh, opiate withdrawal last night, in Phoenix alone? Three million people. Zero. 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 Impossible. Now, I say impossible, then I say you should never say impossible in medicine. There is ways you can kill somebody when they get opiate withdrawal, and that's if you do it yourself. What I mean by that is a physician does it, maybe, and gives you tons and tons of Narcan, then they get some, maybe, some glottic issues, and maybe they get pulmonary edema, et cetera. And, then, and why that happens, that's debatable. But the point is, if you just stop today with your opiates, it might take you a couple days, but you will not die with hundred percent certainty never ever in the history of medicine now somebody's gonna say to me well you know what the guy had you know as we know with opiate withdrawal you get you know piloerection very very hard to hide you get rhinorrhea which a lot of us has rhinorrhea right because of allergies etc we'd like to call it the opiate salute we are constantly doing something like this okay but erection is hard to hide. And, um, as you know, you know, a lot of the guys in the room manscape, and that's why they manscape, because I think, secretly, they're all addicted to opiates. <laughs> <laughs> um, very, very hard to hold, uh, hide. So, um, on the opposite, they say... This study needs to be redone, by the way, and I think it's an easy chart review. They say a quarter of people who have alcohol withdrawal die okay i don't believe that i think it's markedly market less those that's historic stuff but if you ever want to do it a relatively easy study maybe at least two centers maybe us and good sam or something like that just kind of looking through everybody at alcohol withdrawal there are a dime a dozen the chances of death are much less now why is that i think because we're better at being physicians maybe i'd like to think better recognition everyone gets asked that supposed to be asked about your social history when you hit the hospital and see if you're at risk for it okay so Going back to this table, ho- uh, chart, sorry. Hopefully you guys all memorized it at one time in your life, and I will tell you that it's wrong, okay? It is not 100% wrong, but it's pretty damn close to 100% wrong, okay? In fact, I'm gonna tell you that what I learned after doing an addiction fellowship and studying for the board, etc., is that one, you could have people that come in, right here, stop drinking, they've been drinking their whole life, and nothing happens. They stop drinking, yeah, I feel like a drink, maybe, maybe not, I just went cold turkey, I am fine, okay? What percent of people that makes up is debatable, right? Tough, because you're asking surveys, blah, blah, blah. But it's probably about one in five, okay? More commonly, if somebody says, look, I've been drinking for years and years and years, okay, and I really, really want to drink, and if you were able to check their heart rate, it might be fast, they were probably sweaty, et cetera, but they get through it and nothing else happens, okay? Now, you guys are shaking your head. You're saying, that Levecchio, you've lost your mind, right? And in fact, I have lost my mind, but I will tell you that the people that get in trouble usually come to the ED, right? If you're just home chilling out and nothing happens, you're not gonna come to the ED and say, hey, I'm worried about withdrawal. So there's a percentage of people okay we don't know exactly how much but we think it's about 10 or 15 percent that have no signs or symptoms for about two days and then boom they go into hallucinations and dt's and those people are awesome and the reason why they're so awesome is they fool everybody. And the reason why they fool everybody is, I got admitted to the hospital for some cellulitis, I'm in the hospital, blah, blah, blah. And then you say, oh, I was on call on, the, on Friday, I admitted this guy, he's still here, I thought he'd be home with a, a pick line and vanco. I was like, no, he got all crazy and delirious I went to the ICU and he got a CT, an LP, an MRI, blah, blah, blah. And then somebody finally took a good history and found out that he was a raging alcoholic and fell into this category, okay? So, I can't predict who has it by talking to you, who's gonna be in that subgroup. I can tell you that if you talk to the guy and say, have you ever had DTs? He says yes, okay. Almost with certainty, he's gonna have DTs again. Almost with certainty. The only reason he's probably not gonna is he's lying to you, if they're lying to you, okay? But, almost with certainty. Now, there's this really cool thing called a kindling effect. And I got DTs, after I stopped drinking. I got DTs after I stopped drinking, and it kicked in at 48 hours. The next time, it's gonna be a little bit sooner. And when I get alcohol withdrawal, the next time it's gonna be a little bit sooner. TK, we're gonna to go to a 9.15. Is that okay? Okay. Okay, and it's gonna go a little sooner. So I'm trying to tell you that this, you know, this thing where they say you go from this to this and this is almost 100% false. The other thing I'll tell you is that there's a certain subgroup of the population that will come in, have acute signs and symptoms of withdrawal, and never go on to seizures, etc. So what's the treatment for these acutely in the emergency department? What's the treatment for these guys acutely in the emergency department? Not a trick question. There's chairs in the closet there. There's chairs in the closet if you guys want to sit down. Okay, very good. So Ativan, Valium, Versed, blah blah blah. No one knows what the right benzo is, okay? I am a big fan of Valium. Why am I a big fan of Valium? Because it has active metabolites. What do I mean by that? I give you a dose, right? I want to give you less and less and less each day. It tapers off by itself, okay? No, 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 no. you're a fool. I'm a big fan of Ativan because all of these guys have liver disease and Ativan doesn't get metabolized by the liver. If I give you Ativan with end-stage liver disease, and I give myself Ativan with a great liver, no difference in kinetics. And I want predictable kinetics. Okay? Somebody says, no, 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 no. I like Versed, because it makes it into the CNS 30 seconds earlier. I'm like, look, if 30 seconds really means that much to you, you know, great, good for you. Back in the day, we used to give Librium a lot which i think is still really good now i'll push it even further the one thing i learned from this course or this you know sort of thing all right i think we need more noise in the back is there any way do you guys have like symbols or anything no sorry sorry anyone has that that's good oh you got a bat bang the bat for a little while <clears throat> i am one of the principal of addiction medicine i'm looking for a new drug right Why do I keep pushing the envelope looking for a new drug? Well, which if I was addicted to uh, a benzo, which one would I be addicted to? I don't know. You could be addicted to any of them, but the one that gives you the quickest onset in the brain okay, is the one most likely. So if there's somehow, you could put the patient on a drug that kicks in a little bit later and you don't get that big spark. Now, let me tell you this. I got this perfectly fine drug, for example, just for a second, oxycodone. Why do addicts then crush it, they snort it, they stick it under their tongue, they shoot it up. Why do they do that? Because they want the quick onset. And though I'm jumping around here a little bit, the king of all of this is heroin. Okay? You, st- you start an IV on yourself. Or you start- you- if you have a tourniquet on, not a super tight tourniquet, by the time you finish pushing that in, you have a good CNS level. Okay? Seconds. Okay? One or two circulations through your body, you have a high heroin level in your brain. And that's why people love heroin. Heroin's one of the granddaddies of, in addiction medicine. So, what did I learn? I see you and you're... I, I really, really trust you. I love you. You're my favorite uncle. You say, Lovecchio, I am... I need some for my alcohol withdrawal. And I say, you're in the hospital. I'm going to give you benzos, benzos, benzos. And the reason why I went into talks is you never have to worry about the dose, right? Somebody says to me, I gave him 10 milligrams, they're still agitated. I say, great, double it. I gave him 20, they're still agitated. Great, double it. And then eventually when you intubate them or something like that, you can give them a drug like propofol, which is a very potent GABA-A drug, okay? But the other thing we like to use is phenobarbital. So a good take-home message is 130 milligrams of phenobarbital IV is equal to 10 milligrams of of Valium is equal to 2 milligrams of Ativan. Okay? So good things to remember. Different with the PO doses. The point why we like phenobarb is that it lasts so long. So, I don't want... If somebody has a little bit of mild withdrawal, they're a trauma patient, you want to take the edge off, maybe not the best choice. Because it might last too long, and then you want to discharge them, not a great choice. However, I have a guy and I really, really trust him. And he says, look, I'm going to be compliant, I'm going to do whatever you want, etc. But you know I got an addictive personality. A good drug to send them home on might be phenobarbital. Why? I take phenobarbital, it doesn't kick in for like an hour, maybe two hours, probably best at four hours. You don't get a steady state for about 12 hours or so. It's not as addictive as the other GABA-A drugs. Now am I telling you guys to put them all on phenobarb? Absolutely not. Am I telling you in the outpatient setting? That's what I do at outpatient consults. Absolutely. Okay? Because less likely to abuse. Now, why do your addicts, why do your... Um, I shouldn't call them, Why do your drug users ask for oxycodone? Okay, why is oxycodone so important? What onset, and they, it's like one of the opiates that gives you the most high feeling okay but then why don't i just take fentanyl and double down or why don't i just take morphine and double down and, the, and it's very good that you say that and i appreciate that the one of the main reasons when they come in and tell you that i am allergic to tylenol just give me the pure oxycodone i say very very unlikely okay you know there's molecules that are very very hyper allergic and acetaminophen is not one they say i have liver disease don't give it to me. I say, well, you know, in randomized controlled trials, they gave it a patient with end-stage liver disease, they gave them three grams a day for 10 days straight and they had no change in the liver enzymes. And I noticed that your liver enzymes, which I happen to check in triage, are normal. Not that you need to do that. Don't say Lavecchio said before I give Tylenol, I gotta check liver enzymes. But the point is that it won't change it for short term. Especially if you adhere to the new guidelines which say no more than three grams of acetaminophen a day. I think they are being less honest with you not all of them, but some of them are frankly lying. Oxycodone is the only opiate out there that you can crush and inject, okay? I have Tylenol with codeine at home. Okay, I crushed it and injected it, and you know what? I did it one time because my arm felt like it was gonna slough off, my vein was gonna slough off, I got a clot in my vein, it looked disgusting, I looked like I had rhabdomyolysis and it was just located in my arm. And almost every opiate does that with the exception of oxycodone for some of the old timers in the room like myself there was a drug back in the day that you could also inject so you're supposed to you know under sterile technique you prep it in your house you know you crush it up you add a little normal saline in reality what most of these guys do is they crush it, they add a little spit, they heat it up, they dissolve it, okay? And the really cool thing about spit is we've seen all sorts of, you know, osteomyelitis, etc. from people injecting stuff with spit. Iconella, you know, uh, sort of a weird, r- weird sort of things. But the other drug of historic value is perkedan. okay? Also, perpoxifene. And perpoxifene used to be with acetaminophen or it used to be with aspirin. Has anyone ever heard of that? Really, really cool opiate. Yep, Dr. Selkson, thank you. Um, really, really cool opiate. You know, obviously, we don't give it anymore for a number of reasons. One is that it causes prolonged QRS, and it's one of the few opiates that can cause seizures. Okay? So, so far, we've learned that opiates withdrawal, you never die. Alcohol withdrawal, if you believe the historic crap, 25% die. And we need to redo that study. Okay? okay you could just even you could even do a retrospective chart review at Community Bridges and you'd find that the number is much much less we also know that even though I've been doing talks say since 95 if you are addicted to a benzo and you stop cold turkey and you are addicted to alcohol and you're addicted to propofol and and you're addicted to etomidate clinically I cannot tell the difference you all have hyper autonomic issues your blood pressure is high you're sweating you're tachycardic you're agitated you might eventually become confused you might eventually have a seizure you might die the other thing i'll tell you is you're addicted to alcohol i could start uh pounding you with phenobarb okay you're addicted to phenobarb i could start pounding you with alcohol and i can treat it so why don't we ever use why do we just stick with benzos Why do we just stick with benzos, and once in a while we use barbiturates to treat all of these GABA-A withdrawals? Not a trick question. Right, safe, right? No one ever dies from an isolated benzo overdose, okay? When I say no one, I have to say that, sure, if you took lots and lots of benzos, and a little bit of heroin, a little bit of meth, and, you know, some alcohol, sure, you could die, that's mixing, that's different especially if you hit your opiate receptors and your GABA-A receptors, okay? But, an oral benzodiazepine overdose, I want to say never, so I'm going to come close to saying never. As far as I know, in the literature from what I've seen, there's never been a report of an oral benzodiazepine overdose causing a problem. So, n- dying, I think. Mean. So, what I'm telling you is this. If you have a patient in front of you and they're mild withdrawal, and you've got a choice between IV or PO, I would error on the PO if they could take PO, okay? If you have time. Obviously, if they're really, really agitated, you don't know if they're gonna absorb well, you might just give it to them, you know, IV, okay? But, I digress. Now, I know for time's sake, I wanted to tell you that, this is for Holly, and Holly bought me one of these a long time ago, and Holly's heard me say this joke many, many times. So, I know I told you some things from alcohol with the kinetics and stuff like that that are different, and I know for time's sake, I'm gonna tell you, you know, I learned something new right and hopefully you did too and one of the things I really thought I had a good grasp on is taking a crap (laughs) right I say you know what I'm the best taking a crap I got this journal I read in there this and now I bring my phone and blah 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 but there was a great great study and um, it was really kind of cool they gave these guys 20 volunteers or so they gave them radio labeled sort of pellets so they can count it and see you know how well they crapped and they had them do the unnatural squatting, i.e. sit on a toilet seat, or the natural squatting. See that guy kind of doing a natural squatting? And what's really cool is they found out, well, what makes sense to you probably is the puborectus muscle kind of choked your rectum, okay? When you're doing the unnatural squatting, i.e. it's not a straight line down. And it turns out that if you're doing the natural squatting, you see it kind of goes straight down, okay? And prove it, they actually did a rectal ejection fraction. Okay? <laughs> and they showed that your transit time was better, that, you, that more of your stool got pushed out quicker, better, more efficiently. Okay? So I tried this at home for a little while. My cleaning lady, my kids all got upset with me, because very, very messy. But it's just <laughs> something to consider. So, I wanted to do the bare minimum for opiates, and maybe we could channel the rest of this talk someplace else. I have methadone up there, and I would say that, you know, I'm certified to get methadone, I'm certified to give Suboxone. Have anyone ever seen somebody with, get Suboxone? Suboxone is buprenorphine and, and Narcan kind of together, or Naloxone together. And the really, really cool thing about that is that if I give you a pill to go home with and you crush it up, and you shoot it up, you won't get high from it. But I'll even tell you this, it's magical, okay? You come in and you are addicted to pills. You're addicted to pills. You're addicted to heroin. I say, do me a favor. It is 9 o'clock right now. Tomorrow, come to my office. Outpatient. Come to my office. And what I want you to do is not take your drugs for a day. Does that sound good? And in fact, you know, I'll do a drug screen on you or something like that. And granted, you know, it's not 100%. I give you 2 milligrams of Suboxone you're like, hmm, feel a little bit better. I give you another two. Usually you gotta start with four. Finally, I give you up to two increments, and I give you six and you eight, and each time I do that, I do kind of a withdrawal scale, okay? So there's a withdrawal scale, a CAL score, et cetera, but you can kind of go with the withdrawal scale. They've been validated, looked at, you should probably, it's on MD Calc, but it's a common things. Yawning, tachycardia, nausea, that kind of stuff. Okay? And you say, thank you very much, I'm 100% out of withdrawal. So I would say, its I don't want to say it's miraculous, but it's a huge game changer. In fact, I say to you, I'm going to send you home now, it's noon. And you're like, oh my god, what are you going to do? Isn't he going to dive opiate? Impossible. If you watch them for a little bit, they took the drug and they are doing well, okay? You could watch them for 10 minutes. Protocols will watch them for an hour. There's no way they are going down. In fact, so much so that I give him another two milligram tablet and I say, look, if you start to feel these signs of symptoms tonight, just take it. So you took six, you took four, I give you both two milligram tablet to go home with. The next day you come back to me, I say, did you end up taking that two milligram tablet? You say, yes, I took it. Today I'm going to give you eight milligrams and I find your dose. hundred percent safe. You say, look, give me the tablets, I'm going away for the weekend and you think you're funny, you crush them all up and inject yourself, you will not get high. In fact, you'll unfortunately go into withdrawal. So very, very safe. Unfortunately, I have methadone up there, which I absolutely love. Right? Good drug, etc. Except that New England Journal, other articles, multiple times over, when I compare myself, who is not on methadone, to my twin brother who is on methadone, we have the same blood pressure, same height, same weight, same medical issues, he's about 1.5 times more likely to die. I guess the the risk ratio is he's more likely to die, okay, 50% of the time more than me of sudden unexplained death. assumed to be an arrhythmia. What's the arrhythmia, probably, that he died of? Say it again. Torsades. Torsades, that's right. So if you think about methadone, it'll prolong your QTC, Methadone will cause torsades. I have nausea vomiting. You give me Phenergan, that prolongs your QTC. Oh, what a surprise. I have an opiate addiction. I also have a psychiatric disorder. Almost all psych meds cause a prolongation of QTC. Okay, so you have to be really, really careful of that. I, personally, would almost never give a drug that peaked outside of the emergency department. Would I do it for an antibiotic? Sure. Probably not a big deal. Would I do it for an opiate? No. So I see you and I give you 20 milligrams of methadone and I give you 20 milligrams of methadone, when does it peak? When does it peak? I don't know. I don't know. Anywhere from 12 to 36 hours out, okay? And it's undefendable to give somebody a dose of methadone, have them go home, and then they died at night, okay? Now, sure, maybe you watched them for a little bit, they died because they did a little bit of heroin, some more methadone. But I'm gonna say it's very, very, very hard to defend. Would I ever do it? I guess, you know, you never say never, but I'm gonna say I'd be very, very hard pressed. Would I give you a dose if you're being admitted? Sure. Do I give doses in the, in the hospital all the time to people who are on it chronically? Sure. Why, Why do I do it in the hospital? Because you're in a monitored setting. Would I give it to you and send it to jail? That's a tricky one. If you're going to the medical jail part, maybe. So we run into this problem with OB, okay? And remember, OB withdrawal won't kill you, but it may lead to preterm labor, preterm contractions, and you might lose the baby. So the standard of care, unfortunately, is to give methadone for baby, uh, for moms who are pregnant, okay? Can you give Suboxone to those? Probably, but there's no, not enough research, there's no research out there that shows that it's not harmful to the baby. I personally don't believe it is, but I wouldn't want to push the envelope with babies. You know, what do you really have to gain by that, right? Um, Adjunct medications. Do adjunct medications work in opioid withdrawal? The short answer is yes, but just very, very little. So what bothers me the most when I go into opioid withdrawal is I get rip-roaring diarrhea. In fact, there's been a couple case reports in the annals, et cetera, where people took full bottles of Imodium, which as you know is a very, very Imodium, Imodium AD, over-the-counter, which is a very, very weak opiate, okay? And they've taken it to kind of help with their withdrawal. They've taken full bottles. Unfortunately, it also can cause torsades. Now, don't say the next time you take modium when you have Montesuma's Revenge when you're down in Cancun. Just be like, Levecchio told me not to take this. And you ruin your vacation by being on the bowl the whole time. No, these guys took like full bottles, like Costco-sized bottles, you know, 50 tablets in one day and then developed torsades and death, etc. Super super high levels, you know, a hundredfold what you'd get at a therapeutic. So, you know, as they say, you know, everything in life is a poison, it just depends upon the dose. So, would I give them amodium? Yes. Could you give them lamodal which is a little bit stronger anadirrhea? Yes. Okay. Would I try Imodium first? Yes. Okay. Would I give them something for nausea? Yes. What would I give? Probably Zofran is safe. You know, just be careful. QTC prolongation, especially if they're on methadone. But what about drugs like Clonidine? And in randomized code trials, Clonidine, you're, you were able to ask how... You were in rehab and you were, you were getting methadone. Okay. In randomized code trials, Clonidine corrected most people's vitals more than the placebo arm. In randomized code trials, clonidine led to a decreasing amount of methadone that you needed, okay? Now, how much, Levecchio? It was statistically significant. No, really, how much? It took the average person from like 64 milligrams to like 59. So not a huge number, okay? Does it take the edge off? Maybe. Do I do it? Sure. Okay. Finally, we talked a little bit about is it a disease or not? And I think Many things tell us it's a disease, okay? So, I, both my parents, say, are opiate addicts, okay? There's very little doubt that you are probably gonna be an opiate addict. There's very, very little doubt that you, if they were both alcoholics, that you have, uh, that you will be an alcoholic, okay? So we don't have that here, but, and for time's sake, we won't go over it, but in the alcohol, they've actually identified an allele for that, and they've identified it, and there'll be a time, you know and i think you can actually get that what's it called like 52 in me or 53 in you or something that'll actually tell you if you're um if you have that allele okay now the really slick thing with that is if you have that allele and you are an, and you are an opiate uh, and you're an alcoholic you they will respond to naloxone so i don't know if you guys saw what doug ducey wants to do they uh, he did this long acting uh, naloxone he said for opiate users they're going to try to get it free for people etc it's a once a month injection okay once a month injection it's, a, it's essentially naloxone taken once a month okay I don't know why of all the things you can do for opiate users that they would pick that as one of their you know huge incentives it's very very expensive it's a couple grand okay but you could argue that if you have had a very compliant patient you could give them a shot once a week, or you could have them take a pill once a day. And believe it or not, it helps for alcohol, okay? And there's a subgroup that responds six times better if they have this allele, okay? So one day, we'll look at that. So if I was king for a day and I had a detox clinic, I would look for this allele and I would say, you need to be on naloxone at least for a couple months, okay? And if I had all the money in the world, I'd probably give the once a month injection, right? That's awesome. You guarantee compliance. Okay? Um, What am I trying to say? The fact that it's got genetic transmission, the fact that, you know, I mean, really suggests that it's, quote, a disease, both of them. And hopefully it'll change your attitude towards it. Narcan. Okay, I'm sorry. I know. All right. So um, nowadays, I think the standard should be, personally, I think the standard should be that if you come in for an opiate related issue. You had an overdose, you got Narcan, you woke up, now I'm going to send you home. You should probably go home with Narcan. There are resources we can go to. Um, Dr. Shea has worked, has been instrumental in the universe of helping this. Um, you can get Narcan for free, there's a couple of resources. I, I'll share my discharge instructions with you. Um, I think I have to stop for TK's sake, okay? And um, it's only slide three, I had a hundred slides, so. <laughs> Um, okay, well, Carter, come up while I do this. Okay, I want to give one more thing that's in the news really quick. Oh, yeah, go ahead, I'm sorry. Um, so, in your a thing that we don't see too infrequently is. Uh, Keep this on for one sec. Yep. On, uh, methadone at home or heroin who in as jail patients. Right. And they're coming in for withdrawals. And we kind of, I feel like we go back and forth with be like, you're going to manage this, we're going to manage this, who's going to get methadone, how are you doing this, like, what's your go to, like, how do you do that? All right, so let's say that uh, I was in a box, which you're not in but I was in a box, no one else can help me. I would say, look, I feel very uncomfortable giving you methadone, here it is, I'm going to give you oxycodones, I'm going to give you a quasi-equivalent dose, take these every three to four hours, preferably supervised. You could say, hydrocodone's fine, just do that, okay? Just keep them out of withdrawal, because God forbid they have contractions and they lose the baby, okay? Because Lord knows it has nothing to do with the fact that they've been doing heroin for three weeks and getting punched in the belly in jail it has to do with me missing that one dose of methadone Um, if there was some sort of monitored bed in the hospital there i'd probably give them uh, a low dose a lower dose than they said or in new york state which we don't have here you can kind of confirm it through a central registry like if they got the dose or not very very hard to do here so i know i'm not answering your question totally but i think you should Call OB. They have an arrangement that they will always do it. Yeah, you know we always say in tox twenty will keep you out of withdrawal. You, g- you might want more, but it'll keep your vital signs kind of stable and uh, kosher, etc. Yes. There's been some talk in the past, uh, and medicine, world about treating patients with pain, acute uh, pain, with morphine instead of oxycodone because it's less euphoric. Do you have any thoughts? Yeah. Have you heard that a lot? Okay. It's um it's it, I don't know. I, I, I know they say it on EM rap, and I got to pay attention to EM rap all the time. And they said it didn't seem like it's super factual. I think, um, like for me, I would think that fentanyl would be the most addictive because you get a quick high level pretty early on. And I also think that giving somebody P.O. morphine because it kicks in a little bit later would be less euphoric. So it makes sense the basic principles of toxicology and addiction. In other words, if you could give a drug that kicks in really, really late, it would make sense i don't they as far as i know there wasn't a study that they quoted though with it. it's just kind of an opinion so adding to the opinion adding to this bias or belief i would say yeah seems to make sense that that might not be unreasonable okay um because it kicks in later you're less likely to be addictive like you could send somebody home with acute pain with heroin right you could say hey take IV heroin and, and in fact you know Bayer released aspirin and heroin You know, give or take a year apart or something. And then it said, these are both blockbuster drugs. You know, and heroin was used then for acute pain, etc. And they're much more likely to be addicted to heroin than they would be morphine because of that quick onset into the brain. So it makes sense, but I'm always about like, you know, whether you believe in God or not, I believe in RCTs, randomized control trial. That's the holy grail for me. So I want to give you something really, really quick. And this was about, um, this was a study to the editor. And as you know, you know one of my goals in life is to be a better doctor but also get into the new england journal of medicine and uh, they wrote this paper uh, don't quote me but i think it was a study done in 1980 this paper i think was 1980 Uh, the study was done in 1978 i think and this guy said look we looked at our files this is a letter to the editor here's the letter to the editor we examined our current files and we determined that narcotic addiction in 39,000 patients in the hospital who were monitored consecutively. There were four patients who got opiates and became addictive. And they wrote that addiction, hence, is very, very rare in patients who are treated in the hospital with narcotics. And the media loves crap and they like they say this is ground zero this kicked off the opiate epidemic and the reason why they say that is the, the, the drug companies have used this and quoted this they say the chances of you giving an opiate to somebody and them becoming addicted you know do the math 4 divided by 40,000 you know is a minuscule amount less than a percent of a percent obviously this is not a study what are the methods who looked at the charts? A monkey? A human? A robot? I guess they didn't have robots back then. Obviously, what did they define as addiction? I don't know. You know, what were they using then? Perkadan We could, you know, I mean, it's just like ridiculous. And this poor, you know, researcher, you know, now is making the rounds. I don't know if you heard, it was on NPR recently, saying, hey, look, you know, and I think the co-author was a woman, they are like really heartbroken about this. So kind of a silly sort of Thing that is well, well, well quoted. You can get the CEO of the makers of Oxycodone quoting this fact that if you take an opiate, the chances of you becoming addicted are, you know, one, uh, less than you know one in 100,000 or something ridiculous, okay? Because they did the odds ratios, the statistics, on something like this. All right, so I apologize. TK, I'm sorry I took your time there, and I know we have... uh, All right, really, hook up, hook up. Oh, oh.